encourage our hearts this morning as we gather together. May we be emboldened, may we be comforted by the presence of one another, and may we enjoy our time together. Thank you so much for who you are and the fact that we can stand before you as your children. For that, we're grateful. Thank you, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. Uh, recently, I was remembering back to 32 years ago when I began uh, my work as a youth minister in Toronto, and uh, I was working as a summer intern in Etobicoke, and I met this young guy, his name was Paul, and Paul was uh, quite a likable guy, which by the way, isn't always the case in youth ministry. Uh, there's some kids you have to work harder to enjoy, um, but Paul was one of those guys that was just very, very likable. Um, he was a red-haired guy, kind of chubby, lots of freckles. He was just a happy-go-lucky kind of kid. Um, and he had l lost his father about two months before I met him. And we just got chatting, and I invited him away to camp. We did a summer camp up at Muskoka Woods uh, Sports Resort at that time. So I'll never forget getting up there and uh, standing on the beach and wondering where Paul was. And some of you uh, who are older will remember the song by Manfred Mann that goes something like this, do a diddy diddy dum diddy do. You know that song? Okay, 1964, which was a good year. Um, <laughs> so I was standing on the beach and then I saw the tip of this canoe come by and uh, in the front of the canoe there was a girl and in the middle of this guy and in the back there was another girl. Uh, and the guy was doing all the paddling. And so from the shore, I could hear, do a diddy diddy dum diddy do. I've got two chicks in my canoe. <laughs> um, which wasn't politically correct. Um, well, it isn't now. Then it was kind of fun. And Paul was just one of those guys that my heart ached for that I wanted him to know Jesus and the power of knowing a relationship with his heavenly father. And over the course of the next few nights, the speaker was speaking, and he talked about um, the fact that we are those of us who trust in Christ Jesus, who have surrendered our lives to him, we are God's children. And so as the speaker spoke about that, I remember Paul's response at the end of the night and talking to him and, and saying, Paul, you know, what do you think of what he's speaking about? And he said, yeah, that's great for most people, um, but I'm an accident. And I'll never forget that, no matter what happened over the course of that week and the months ahead, I could never get Paul to believe, I could never get him to surrender to that thought that he was actually God's beloved child, as we sang about. And this morning I want to talk about a few things, and that's one of them. I want us to talk about the fact that we are children of God. This is today's big idea. We are children of God, crafted with the utmost care to communicate genuine love to an incredibly needy world. I don't know if you've been following the news this week. Well, you don't even have to. It's hard to escape what's going on around our world. And I think at times that can be overwhelming, um, but I do think that we have something that can make a significant difference. So David, if you would post that up there, that PowerPoint, that would be great. Thank you. We're going to talk uh, from Romans chapter 12 this morning. And... I just want to talk to you about what happens in Romans chapters 1 through 11 before we get to 12, because it's pretty important if we're going to understand 12. Uh, the book of Romans is a pretty heady theological book, but it lays out some things that are incredibly important for us to understand. 
It begins with this idea that God created all things and he created us in his image and he wants us to know him. Uh, and then around chapter 3, it gets to this idea that's very critical for us to understand. We actually sang about this morning that we are indeed people who are marked by sin. Uh, Psalm 14 will tell us that there's nobody who looks for God naturally. It's God who comes looking for us. And so about uh, chapter 3, verse 23, it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So here we are, and we're in this place, and we don't know God, and our natural inclination is to run apart from Him and to do things that are diametrically opposed to what He wants us to do. That's kind of where Romans starts. And then it moves on to Romans chapter 5, and we get to some really good news, and it says this, that even while we were yet sinners, so you've got that, here we are, this is what our natural inclination is, and he says, even while we were yet sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. By his blood, he made it possible so that we could stand before him and, and we could declare, or we have been declared, righteous because of what Jesus has done for us. So that's very critical to understand when we look at the book of Romans. And then about chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, it says something to the effect of um, those who believe in their heart that Christ Jesus is Lord and confess with their mouth will be saved. So they will have eternal life. They will have life here and now that is abundant. Um, salvation didn't just mean a future thing for the people who first heard it. It also meant in the here and now, this makes a difference in our present life. It's not just about eternity in heaven. Okay, It's about here and now as well. And then in Romans chapter 8, you have this great declaration that says, you are children of God. The inheritance of God is now before you. You get to enjoy that. So we are children of God. Let me read uh, Romans chapter 12, verses 9 and following. I'll also say Romans 12, chapter 1. There's so much important stuff. You'll forgive me for this, but I just think it's so important for us to understanding the rest of what goes on in chapter 12. It's all about what God has done for us, which makes it possible for us to now do, um, to genuinely love other people. Romans 12.1 says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. And other scripture will say, in 1 John it says, um, because Jesus first loved us, we can love. So again, we get this, right? This is our model. This is what Jesus has done for us beforehand. And now we get this opportunity to live it back, to live it before other people to express genuine love to them. So, verse 9, I'm there now. It says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in prayer. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, 
so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so, you will, re you will heap burning coals on his head. And then finally, verse 21, and this is a really important verse for us to hear as well. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Christopher Wright, who's a theologian, has said this, that the entire Bible is generated by and is all about God's mission. So, therefore, every book of the Bible, from Genesis through the Psalms, through the minor prophets, through the Gospels, through the Epistles, all the way through Scripture, the thing that binds it together is that it is a story. And every book of that Bible, every story in the Bible, is all about how God wants to reconcile us to Himself. That's what His mission is. And then, strangely, He actually includes us in that. We get to be part of that mission. And I think sometimes that we move on to the mission too quickly before we really understand what does it mean for me to be a child of God? Those aren't just nice words. Those are things that actually make a tremendous difference in the life of a person. I work with a lot of people who are in um, ministry leadership, youth ministry leadership, and one of the things that often happens is that people will graduate from Bible college or wherever and they're just so excited to get out there and start talking to people about who God is that they forget this thing that God also wants to do work in their life first. And to understand that you are a child of God is incredibly important because it changes everything. It changes your identity. And often people that I will see in ministry, they do this. Um, they work so hard because they're trying to prove to somebody else and to prove to God that they're actually valuable. And what we need to understand is this, is that God doesn't say you are valuable or you are his children because of what you do. He says, I love you because I do. God is love. And I remember uh, years ago when my first child was born, Brendan, and I remember that day, and this is being recorded, my wife's not here, so I have to be careful what I say. Um, but I remember very clearly that morning her waking up and saying, I think today's the day. You know, Brendan was 12 days overdue. Um, we were living in Toronto at that time. My wife was actually a labor and delivery nurse. And so she said, here's how the day is going to go. Joanne is very practical. Um, <clears throat> she said, we're going to go downtown. We'll register. And then um, so we went downtown. We did that. And she said, now we're going to get something to eat because you'll get hungry. This day may drag out. Um, so that was interesting, because there we were sitting in a restaurant, and it was a weekday, and it happened to be lunch, and, and there's lots of business people out for lunch. So we're sitting at a table, and I'm eating, um, and kind of looking at my wife. I don't have a clue what's going on. And uh, Joanne would have these labor pains. So I'd be sitting at a table eating, and, and, and Joanne would be, you know, she, you know the noise she makes. <laughs> <laughs> or people make. Women. And I was pretty sure um, that I had something to do with this. So there we were in this restaurant, and I'd hear people behind me saying, oh, that poor woman, she's really in pain. Um, so anyway, we, time progressed. We went up to the uh, delivery floor, and we were on that floor, and it was a slow day for whatever reason at Toronto General Hospital. 
and um, Joanne's friends were on duty, so they all kind of came in the room, and the doctors that she knew. By the time, we, everybody that you could ever imagine in that neighborhood, I think, was in our delivery room. And um, then finally that moment came, uh, 6.56 p.m. I can remember it pretty clearly, uh, you know, where Brendan... Uh, <laughs> It's only being audio recorded. <laughs> so where Brendan came out, and there he was, and there was my son, and there was this moment of hesitation from me, and I remember this one nurse, her name was Lisa, uh, you know, they cleaned up Brendan a little bit, and, and then she said, Dad, are you going to hold your son? And in that moment, when I held my son for the first time, and it's happened with both sons, um, that I got quite emotional. And let me tell you this, that, that Brendan didn't look his best at that point. <laughs> huh? um, he, he wasn't attractive at that point, really. <laughs> uh, he wasn't dressed well. Um, and he made a lot of noise. And there, but when he was placed in my arms, I loved him just because I did. And, and if you're not a parent, you may, may not understand it from that angle. But think about this from time to time. Somebody will ask you, well, what, perhaps your spouse or somebody else, why do you love me? And it's actually a pretty difficult question to answer because we don't sit back and analyze that that often. We just say, I love my mom and my dad because I do. It's just part of who we are. Uh, when I think about it, it gives me more reason to love. But I love my spouse because I do. That's a state, that's, that's something that happens. And the author of the book of Romans uh, and, and other books, 1 John in particular, is saying there's actually privileges that come with being a child of God. We sang about one or two just a song ago, which is very cool, because Rachel and I just have exchanged texts, and I said, here's what I'm speaking about roughly this week, and you know, the songs complement quite well what I'm going to say. Um, so there's these privileges of the children of God that we get to approach God boldly. We don't have to come to him feeling a sense of shame. No, we can go to him and we can say, matter of fact, if you are feeling a sense of shame and guilt, Sundar Krishnan, who's a pastor at Rexdale Alliance in Toronto, said this, and I think it's worth noting. He said, if you feel shame before you go to the throne of God, uh, you can be pretty sure that that's not of uh, God. If it's specific, God will let you know what's wrong. But shame is this state that the devil puts us in. So we can actually approach God with this sense of boldness, knowing all that Jesus has done for us. We go before him, and then it says we uh, get this great inheritance. If you check out Romans 8, 14 through 16, you'll find that. There's this great inheritance for his children. There are these privileges that are ours, so we don't need to worry so much about our identity. It makes all the difference in the world. I don't have to prove myself to anybody. God loves me because he does. There's also this responsibility that goes with it. If I am a child of God and if Jesus has done all of these things to bring me to the place where I am declared righteous, where he has died for me on a cross and taken upon me all of my sin and shame, if he's done that, then it's my responsibility to also try and live like that in a way that's worthy of that righteousness that has been declared on me. That's our responsibility. 
So there's this integrity, and in this text it uses the word genuine, uh, but another text it says, let your love be without hypocrisy, or let love be sincere. So there's this idea, if we're declared righteous, then there should be this sense that we want to live righteously before God. That's an integrity thing. If we live in a way that's diametrically opposed to that righteousness, it looks ridiculous, it looks hypocritical, and it's not doing anybody any good. You are particularly our world. Second thing I want to talk about this morning is, is this, is that we, we are crafted with the utmost care. I was uh, speaking somewhere at the end of May, and I asked my young son, if you could put that picture up there, please, David. The title slide. There we go. I was asking my son, who's an art student, I said, would you, would you please, um, you know, put something together for me, and, and we'll use it as a poster, and so on. And, and I had this idea that I was speaking from Romans chapter 12, and I, I said that to him, and uh, he sent me back this poster, and I said, well, could you tell me, you know, what it is that you're thinking about in this? Like, you know, I've given you the theme genuine, but what is it that you're thinking? And I, and I found it quite interesting for him to articulate that, and here's what he said. He said, the theme of genuine produced images of labor and work in my mind, specifically hands-on and tactile work. The image of an individual working tirelessly to create a rowboat from raw materials seemed honest and true. The average time it takes to complete a handmade wooden rowboat is roughly 108 hours. So if you think about that, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says this, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So God created us, we're his children, but he also created us with great care. Uh, a number of years ago, my brother and sister-in-law decided to have a rowboat made, and it took most of the summer uh, by some very skilled craftsmen. Uh, and they hardly ever take it out on the lake, I think because it looks too beautiful. It's this 24-foot-long rowboat, uh, and it looks absolutely spectacular. But it's obvious that somebody has taken time and worked with their hands to make this an absolutely beautiful thing. So God has crafted us with great care, too. I was reading, um, some of you may have done this. I wouldn't be surprised. So you'll be familiar with the Rolls-Royce cars. So years ago, I was going out to Vancouver, and a friend of mine, we were going for a retreat, several of us, and he said, I'll pick you, up, I'll pick you guys up at the airport. So he showed up. Sure enough, he's, he's a pastor at an Anglican church in Vancouver. Uh, he showed up at the airport, and he had a little driver's cap on, uh, and he met us at the luggage rack, and then he took our baggage out to the car, and he had borrowed from one of the members of his congregation this big Rolls Royce. We were going in style. It was pretty cool. Uh, but on all of those Rolls Royce, on the front hood, you'll see, we know her probably as the lady. And some people, when they're adolescents, um, used to walk around try and collect those things. Okay, they would steal them from the hoods of cars and keep them. Now, are you familiar with that? Temptation? Hopefully none of you did that. I did not. Okay, you thought I was going to say it. No, I did not. <laughs> um, but each one of those things is actually called the spirit of ecstasy. 
And each one of those things is crafted uniquely. I don't know if you know that, but each of them has a little mark in it that sets it apart from all of the other little ladies that appear on the hoods of Rolls Royces. So if we were to go, I, I'm going to guess there's about 300 people here this morning. And if we went, you know, row by row and we talked about each person and I would say, yeah, Steve, tell me about Robin. Steve would give me, um, you know, a description of who Robin is. And we would see that, and then I'd ask Robin to give a description of who Steve is, and they would be different. Okay, they'd have unique characteristics. Then we could ask Carolyn. You know, somebody described Carolyn. What are her gifts and her abilities? What is she all about? What things does she appreciate? What makes her different from the next person? We'd find out Carolyn is also unique. And we could continue on and on and on. And we'd see that God has craft, crafted each one of us uniquely and different. And, and at the beginning of chapter 12, I didn't talk about this part before, uh, but Paul talks about the gifts that are given each person. And these gifts are to be expressed to the body of Christ, to different people. Some of you have the gift of servanthood, or some have the gift of teaching, or some have the gift of music, or whatever the case is, we're crafted with these different things to be expressed to one another. They're not to be kept to ourselves. But it's for the sake of the church, so that the church grows well, so that people uh, admire the beauty and the, and the goodness of what God has created, so that another book of the Bible talks about us maturing to be like Christ. That's why we express those gifts. So we're crafted with this utmost care. And sometimes it might be tempting to doubt that and say, you know, there's nothing really good about me. There's nothing that I really do unique. Uh, and you've probably heard people say this, yes, there is. And when we understand who, what Jesus has done for us and how he's created us and the gifts that he's given us, then hopefully we can express them. Which brings me to my third point. And I was watching the news on Friday night, and uh, about 6 o'clock, I believe it was that, um, yeah, the 6 o'clock episode of the news, or whatever you call that, and I've never heard a newscaster in all my life say this, but it was 6 p.m., and he came on the news, and his first opening line, what they call a hook, was an apology. And he said, um, the news today may be overwhelming. For that, I apologize. I have never heard a news anchor say that in all of my life. Because every day and every night you turn on the news, there's a myriad of stories that express that to you, right? You know, uh, if you watch the news, you're going to be told, chances are, some bad news. Every once in a while, there'll be some good news. But this night, he said, um, and the headlines were incredible. You know the stories. Uh, the night before, there had been, on Bastille Day, the terrible tragedy in France. Uh, in the last few months, we've had, you know, the Dallas shootings, the Orlando shootings. Uh, we've had these tragedy after tragedy. That day, there was also a young girl discovered in Calgary. And it is tempting, and I don't think I'm just the, one, the only one here, but it is tempting sometimes to be overwhelmed with that flood of bad information. And I think this is just scary, and this is heavy. And here, even in our own community, um, you know, we've had a difficult few months or year. Uh, there have been, you know, young people and probably old people too, um, but who have been tempted to take their own life. 
who have been so burdened by mental anguish that they couldn't see any other reason to live. It's been a difficult, overwhelming time. In verse 21 of that passage in, in Romans 9, um, my Bible closed, says this, Do not be overcome by evil. Other versions will say, do not be overwhelmed, but overcome evil with good. So there's a book out presently, it's called Good Faith, uh, by a man named David Kinneman. Some of you may have heard of this. And what he's done is he has done research predominantly in the United States, and he's asked this question, of the Christians you know, what do you know about them? And the, the answer that they've come up with, by and large, is that Christians seem irrelevant and extreme. That's the byline of the book. And then from time to time, they'll weave in a good story about how Christians are known for other things. I know Christian people. <laughs> I know some beautiful, fantastic Christian people. And I also know that the media gravitates to those sound bites that are awful and ugly. And the author says in this thing, as much as possible for you, and this is how I will interpret it at least, as much as is possible for you, be different. Be somebody who comes into those scary, sometimes gloomy situations as a person of light. Matthew chapter 5 talks about that. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Express that light to all the world. We can declare something that Kinnaman calls a good faith, that where Christians are known for being relevant, where they're known for being kind, where they're known for loving genuinely. If you think about those words in chapter 9, and there's about 30 little points that he just puts out there quickly, he tells us about how to love. This, this isn't rocket science. This is something. Here's the beauty of this. This is something that we're all capable of doing. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. That means speaking highly of people, elevating them above yourselves. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. You hear all those little be things? Be constant. Contribute to the needs of saints and seek to show hospitality. It's interesting how some people organize different passages when they want to speak about it. And one of the people that I was reading um, talked about this idea of this passage is really like concentric circles. This passage teaches us about how to love one another uh, in the Christian community. And here's the deal. When, when people say, you know what, I don't really need church to live out my Christian faith. I can do it on my own. But here's the deal. It's really hard to live out faith by yourself. You cannot appreciate the diversity that we have if you are isolated and on your own. You cannot express the love and the goodness that God wants you to declare to other people when you do it on your own. So this author talked about, yes, first of all, we express this genuine love, this sincere love to the people in our church, to our Christian community. And then we communicate it, the next circle would be to our larger community, 
Do we allow ourselves to be in a position where we rub shoulders? And I, I think the spring and summertime are fantastic for this, actually, where you get to sit on the back patio with other people or wherever you are, and with people who may not believe the same things as you or at a campsite or wherever you may be in a restaurant, and you actually get to talk to them about things. And people, I cannot tell you in the last week alone how many people have told me that they have felt overwhelmed by what's happening in the world. And isn't it great to be able to say there is a different story? There is a God that loves you so much. Uh, Dick Foth said it this way, and, and I love it, to express the gospel. Uh, he said, he left his place to come to our place to take our place so that we can all go back to his place. So isn't it wonderful that we can actually have this God who loves us so incredibly but he doesn't want us to just stay there and enjoy it. We should enjoy it. But he also wants us to express that love and that affection to other people in genuine ways. In ways that causes them, you know, gives their brain a little bit of a jar <laughs> and says, maybe there's a different way to believe. Maybe there's a different way to love. There's a different way to live in this world. And we'll have an opportunity in a few weeks, you didn't make this announcement this morning, but I think people know, to express hospitality, not just to one another, but also to a family who's arriving here from Liberia, a mother and five children. Can you tell me her first name again? Victoria. And here's what I think, and I think we can do this for one another, I hope we do. Um, sometimes I wish I did it better. <laughs> uh, and, and I'll start at that place. But I wish I was better at expressing that love to one another. I think we have an incredible opportunity to do that for one another, but we also have that an opportunity to do this for this family that's going to be coming here in a few weeks who will know nobody. Their whole world will be shaken up. It already has been. Uh, and they're looking for people who will love them in genuine ways, not just in the first week or two, <laughs> but in five, six months down the road. And here's this thing, for people who have been declared righteous, who have experienced all this goodness from God, can we also express it to other people now? It's a great opportunity. And I was reminded um, recently of the story of Nathan Foster. It was just a great story. His father is Richard Foster, which may mean nothing to some of you, uh, but he's a great Christian author uh, um, who's written things for years. But his son gave his dad a real ride for his money during his adolescence. He did everything he could to make his parents' life miserable. And then while they're climbing these 14,000 high foot mountains in Colorado, he began to appreciate his dad in a new way. He always thought his dad was distant and uncaring and unloving. And then he came to this realization atop of, the, of a 14,000 foot mountain. He said, I got it. The thing that my dad did, no matter how miserable I tried to make his life, my dad showed me hospitality. So, causes us to remember even the story of the prodigal son, doesn't it? Here's this son who does everything he can to estrange himself from his family and from his father. And what does his father do? He welcomes him back with open arms. It's this opportunity that we have. And I'm not saying let people walk all over you, but what I'm saying is this. 
Because Jesus has made us different and Jesus has given us strength, we have an opportunity to express hospitality to everyone. Matter of fact, Paul says, even your enemies. And whoa, <laughs> I just want to kick them in the backside. Uh, but Paul's saying, no, I actually want you to love those people. And in so doing, you'll heap burning coals upon their head. Not literally, but they'll be brought to a place where they'll say, oh my goodness, was I stupid. And they'll have cause to live differently. We have a phenomenal opportunity ahead of us. So if somebody, uh, if we were to summarize this whole passage, there's three things that I just want to bring quickly or suggest to you quickly. To love somebody genuine is to love fervently, relentlessly, and practically. So that means with a sense of passion, that means without ever giving up, and that means in practical ways. Like for this family who is coming here to help them to furnish their home, to give them things that they need for the necessity of life in the coming years. And if you think about your neighbor and people around you, if you think, oh, I just wish they would come to know Christ, sometimes that's means just helping them in very practical ways, <laughs> getting involved. I don't think, at least not for me, and you tell me if this is true for you, for me the difficulty isn't so much um, figuring out what to do. It's allowing my heart to go there and actually engage with people because sometimes it seems safer to stay back. And I think this is time when Christians really need to step out and say, I'm not going to disengage so much from our culture, but I'm going to engage on purpose so that I can rub shoulders with people who believe differently and so that I can express in genuine ways the love of God. It might mean be getting messy. It might mean getting dirty. Uh, it might mean having some uncomfortable conversations but to express genuine love I think necessitates the fact that we declare that righteousness that Jesus has given to us to other people. I'm going to ask you to stand for a minute. I want to read um, I want to read this passage from the message and then I'm going to give you an opportunity to bless one another. Is that? But I think this just makes it painfully clear what Paul is asking of us. Love from the center of who you are. Don't fake it. Run for dear life from evil. Hold on for dear life to good. Be good friends who love deeply. Practice playing second fiddle. Don't burn out. Keep yourselves fueled and aflame. Be alert servants of the master. Cheerfully expectant. Don't quit in hard times. Pray all the harder. Help needy Christians. Be inventive in hospitality. Bless your enemies. No cursing under your breath. Laugh with your happy friends when they're happy. Share tears when they're down. Get along with each other. Don't be stuck up. Make friends with nobodies. Don't be the great somebody. Don't hit back. Discover beauty in everyone. If you've got it in you, get along with everybody. Don't insist on getting even. That's not for you to do. I'll do the judging, says God. I'll take care of it. In this last sentence, your generosity will surprise him with goodness. 
Don't let evil get the best of you. Get the best of evil by doing good.